Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Access to housing is key to helping Native survivors escape abusive situations. But the solution needs more than just that. Advocates say housing needs to be secure, stable, and culturally appropriate to ensure the long-term viability for those needing a place away from an abusive environment. We'll hear from advocates about the progress for creating viable housing solutions for Native abuse survivors and where the need is greatest. We're live from the Women Are Sacred Conference right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. One of the biggest casino resorts in North America has officially opened in Toronto, Canada's biggest city. And as Dan Karpinchuk reports, while some may be thrilled about the resort, it's not sitting well with at least one First Nation in Ontario. The Great Canadian Casino Resort Toronto boasts 4,800 slot machines, nearly 150 live table games, and sports betting kiosks. In addition, there's a 400-room hotel, and in coming months, it will open a 5,000-person entertainment venue that could host live music and sports events. The cost for all of this, $1 billion. The problem, however, according to Kelly LaRocca, chief of the Mississaugas of Scugog Island First Nation, northeast of Toronto, is that it will drain critical funding away from her band's casino. In 2016, the band signed a revenue-sharing agreement with the Ontario government. Since that deal was signed, two smaller casinos opened and now the mega-facility in Toronto, and LaRocca says that's a deal-breaker. It is the economic uh, foundation and lifeblood of our community. The Ford government broke their word to our community. Honour your commitments. Honour your word. LaRocca says her band's casino has brought clean drinking water, enhanced health care and education. All that is now at risk. Other Indigenous communities that operate casinos are also concerned and see the mega-casino as an existential threat. The band is set to enter mediation with the province, and if that doesn't work, it could come down to legal action. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. A lithium mine company has filed a lawsuit against Native Americans organizing to stop construction of the Thacker Pass mine in Nevada. The mine would supply a core material needed to power a new fleet of electric vehicles in the U.S., but Native American activists say it will pollute the land and nearby communities. Christina Anastead reports. It's a kind of slap lawsuit, strategic lawsuit against public participation that aims to ban Native American protesters and environmentalists from the area and force them to pay monetary damages, which could total millions of dollars. Critics say it's an attempt to thwart protected First Amendment rights to protest. But some Native American tribes say the mine at Thacker Pass will harm wildlife habitats, degrade ground water and pollute the air. They call the mine green colonialism. Duranda Hinkey is a member of the Fort McDermott Paiute and Shoshone tribe and a leader of a group known as People of Red Mountain. She says it's also located at the site where the U.S. Cavalry massacred her ancestors in 1865. It's going to directly affect my people, my culture, my religion, my traditions. Um, it's literally desecrating um, a massacre site of my people. And I'm worried that these environmental issues and these cultural issues are directly going to affect my children, the children after that, and children after that. 
And to me, that's cultural genocide. A federal court will consider a challenge to the mine later this month after two years of protests. The Biden administration supports the mine. The lithium could be used to power a new fleet of electric vehicles that would be half of U.S. car sales by 2030. The project also has support of some leaders of Hinkie's tribe who point to the promise of jobs and development on the reservation where unemployment is above the national average. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for National Native News. The grand opening of a new skate park will take place on the land of Standing Rock Tuesday afternoon. The gift to the Standing Rock community was made possible by Jeff Immense organization, Montana Pool Service and Nike. To date, his charitable foundation has built more than 30 world-class skate parks in rural, isolated communities in Montana and surrounding states, including across Indian country. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Is your tank empty? There's another gas you should be worried about. Carbon monoxide can kill in minutes. But you can stay safe by placing CO alarms in your home. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy sitting in for Sean Spruce. And we're broadcasting live from the 2023 Women Are Sacred Conference at the Isleta Resort and Casino. The National Network to End Domestic Violence says a little more than half of female survivors of gender-based violence do not get the housing services they need. Statistics for Native women are harder to come by, but statistically, Native women are uh, disproportionately affected by domestic violence. They are also more likely than other groups to be unsheltered. In this hour, we'll hear from Native domestic violence survivor advocates about the latest in creating safe and culturally appropriate spaces for Native victims of violence and others who are on and off the reservation who also need a place to um, improve their situations. You can join our conversation too. How does your tribe or Native community step up to support victims of domestic violence? If you're an advocate, we want to hear about your work too. Our phone lines are open. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us at the Women Are Sacred Conference here in Esleta Pueblo is Caroline Laporte. She is the director of the STARS Indigenous Safe Housing Center. She is an immediate descendant of the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians. Welcome back to Native America Co Calling, Caroline. Hi. Hi. All right, so um, could we um, start off by just kind of talking about some basics here? Um, you know, it's, it's clear uh, Native abuse survivors need safe housing, but beyond, you know, just a roof over their heads, what, what else is necessary? 
Well, I think one thing we've been really clear about since we started this new resource center was, was the need for emergency shelter. Um, so I think sometimes when we talk about the housing spectrum, we forget about those emergency responses. Uh, and especially in the mainstream field or the non-native field, we're hearing this push for different models that are newer, right, or more exciting, and they've got access to housing inventory. Uh, but in Indian country, what we desperately need and what we're hearing from survivors are domestic violence shelters. Uh, so that's the first thing. I think survivors also need to feel like they have a sense of control, right, that they are in uh, the lead over what their outcome is. Um, I think they need to feel like they have culturally-based support. They need peer-to-peer -peer support. Um, again, that sense of belonging. Uh, they need housing that is sustainable. It's difficult, I think, when you only have 30 days or 45 days or even 90 days to really get up on your feet. I think people need to have this option of extended time. Um, and they need housing that's habitable. I think that's the other thing we forget about. Uh, is that even where there's housing inventory in Indian country, in some places, uh, that housing suffers from lack of um, plumbing, heating, electrical, sometimes windows, sometimes 911 access. Um, so I think that's just like looking at the broad spectrum of what survivors have needed uh, so far. But they also just really need uh, unique supports within the spaces that they're in. Um, and I know we can talk about that later too. Okay. All right, and um, I want to join the, um, I want the other guests also to uh, join the conversation. We have uh, Gwendolyn Packard also with the STARS Indigenous Safe Housing Center. She's the uh, senior housing specialist, and she's uh, Hyangtawan, Dakota. Welcome. Thanks for joining. And uh, we also have uh, Noreen Hill. She's the founder and CEO of Mother Nation. She is from the United Nation of Thames, of the Thames. Welcome to Native America Calling, Noreen. Thank you, Sikali. Thanks for joining. So, um, uh, Caroline, I want to ask you this. How do they uh, um, have access, get access to the kind of support and resources you were just mentioning before? I think through a broad array of advocacy, right? Um, certainly one of the ways that you can get a referral is by contacting the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. I know she's been on your show a few times as well. Um, you know, they're advocates, again, they're peer-to-peer -peer support, uh, and they're gonna offer a warm referral or handoff, um, you know, if you, have, if you have a need for shelter or any sort of like transitional housing. Um, other spaces are just advocates like Noreen Hill with us here. Um, you know, these are women that work in their community who are in uh, contact with survivors, who survivors trust. Uh, those survivors will reach out to advocates, they'll reach out to tribal coalitions, uh, they'll reach out to their local tribal domestic violence program if the tribe has one. Uh, and then usually those services are coordinated through that. All right, and um, Gwen, I want to ask you this question. Um, what, what is the priority for cultural, cultural uh, relevancy when it comes to when it comes to housing, especially housing for uh, people who are escaping violence? It's, it's really important that uh, they feel whole, at home and connected. And right. I'm sorry, <laughs> audio issue? Sorry. Is there, oh, sorry about that. Okay. Sorry folks, we are broadcasting live here from uh, the, the conference and um, I think we got this uh, technical thing going. Go ahead, uh, oh. Gwen. I was saying it, it feels, it's really important that people feel at home, that they feel connected, that they're in a place where um, they, you know, they're working with their relatives, uh, that people understand them and understand what their needs are. And um, 
you know, there's so many threads that run through all of that, you know, such as the historical trauma and the present day trauma and, um, you know, just, just to, that people, they're working with people that have an understanding of what they're going through. So it's really, it's critical. Otherwise, you, you don't feel supported. You feel out there alone. You feel like no one understands you. Um, and sometimes you're even judged for that. I mean, we've heard of places where uh, people aren't allowed to speak their language. And so what does that feel like? Right, you know, so right. It, so there's so many things, factors out there that really uh, speak to the importance of culture in the work that we do. Yeah, and um, uh, the, the STARS uh, Indigenous Safe Housing Center, what, is, what does STARS stand for, Gwen? <laughs> we really like our acronym. Uh, STARS <laughs> is S-T-T-A-R-S, -T -T and it stands for Safety, Training, Technical Assistance, Resources, and Support. So we thought we were being really clever with that, and we're both really like sci-fi space people. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, I, um, you know, I think uh, um, maybe other than that, you know, the stars, the cosmos are very yeah. important to yeah, us, exactly. to our uh, native cultures yeah. as well. And even in our logo, which I know people can't see, but we have a we worked with an indigenous artist, and um, we have a really unique logo that kind of represents the past and the future that has the stars in there of our ancestors has the moon for time and water earth mother we reflected all of those as many things as we could reflect into that image and we're really proud of that as well all right um caroline uh the the national network on safe housing uh you guys have been instrumental in um you know, w with that uh, for the past five years or so. What was behind uh, getting, getting everything started? Yeah, so we were a part of a group uh, that was funded by different federal funders. Um, and that group is Safe Housing Partnerships. Um, their other acronym is the DBHTAC, which I honestly cannot remember what that stands for. Um, but the, it was great to be involved in that space. And I think Gwen and I both participated uh, for a long, long time uh, as advisory members. Um, but that space is not for Native people. That is a space for, for non-Indigenous people um, who also need access to safe housing, who also experience domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, I think but what we were noticing, right, was that, that what Native survivors was, were experiencing was so unique to what was going on uh, that we really needed a separate center um, and so with the support of all of our partners, both within that space and through the federal funders, through in particular through uh, HHS, which is Health and Human Services, um, they were able to, um, we actually made a policy recommendation from a report from 2020. They pulled together funding off of that recommendation. Uh, we applied for it, received it, and kind of hit the ground running. Uh, the benefit of that, of course, was that we've been doing that work largely unfunded uh, already for about three years, three or four years, right, Gwen? Five years, yeah. So we just continue to do it. We continue to host a national work group. Um, we continue to host listening sessions with survivors uh, and really working and meeting wonderful service providers like Noreen Hill here to, uh, to my right um, who are really doing amazing work in their community. Right, and uh, what was one of the first things the work group uh, identified as like the primary need uh, for survivors when it comes to housing? Domestic violence shelters. Right. They need tribal domestic violence shelters. 
Um, nationally, there are around 1,500 to 2,000 domestic violence shelters uh, for non-Native people. And that's not to say that Native people don't access those spaces, because they do. Uh, but they're often met either with prejudice, uh, racism, bias, or at the very least, right, they're not met with culturally supportive services. Nationally, for tribes, despite having 576 federally recognized tribes, there are less than 50 tribal domestic violence shelters. That means that a survivor is either leaving their community uh, to go to a non-native shelter or non-native space where their sense of belonging or their sense of support might be impacted, uh, or they're not getting services at all. They're not leaving. Um, uh, Caroline, we, um, or no, no, I wanted to ask this question of uh, Gwen over there. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about, um, or Caroline mentioned that uh, na uh, Native um, victims of violence, they might have access to all of these other kind of resources out there in maybe an urban area. Um, are there any particular maybe other kind of needs that differ between the two communities, uh, urban and rural? You know, the, the big question we always hear in the, in the domestic violence world is, um, uh, why do women stay, or why don't they leave? And they have no place to go, number one. And so even if they're um, able to leave, look, think about what it takes to start up from that. You know, finding a place, finding a job sometimes. How are you gonna maintain housing? How is it sustainable for you? You know, all of those things all start snowballing into place when we're working with survivors. And as Caroline mentioned, sometimes those things aren't doable in 30, 60, or 90 days. It, t it takes a long time for that to happen. And if they have children, you know, it's even more difficult, so. All right, we'll uh, be back right after this short break here. Tribes in southeast Alaska say declining salmon populations have reached emergency levels. That's the latest region affected by severe drops in salmon runs across the state. We'll find out what's behind the losses and what's being done about it on the next Native America Calling. OCO calling all warriors. It's time for self-care. Men or warriors all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash men's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, and we're broadcasting live from the Women Are Sacred Conference at the Isleta Resort and Casino. This gathering is focused on improving the lives of survivors and strengthening Native advocacy. Among the many topics being explored these next few days is safe housing for Native victims of violence and domestic violence. You're welcome to join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. 
I want to uh, reintroduce our guests we have with us here. We have uh, Carolyn Laporte. She is the director of STARS Indigenous Safe Housing Center. We also have uh, Gwen Packard, senior housing specialist with the STARS Indigenous Safe Housing Center, and uh, Noreen Hill, founder and CEO of Mother Nation. Uh, just before the break, Gwen, we were talking about um, uh, maybe the differences, the different needs between the two communities urban and uh, rural native communities. Can you continue, continue with that? Sure, thank you. And so one of the things too, oftentimes those um, off-reservation shelters that are available, uh, transportation is a huge issue along with geography. You know, if it's uh, winter and there's six feet of snow, it's difficult to get to that shelter. And a lot of those shelters are small too. They really can't even take a whole lot of people. Um, and so, and, and just getting there, getting from your home to the shelter is, is oftentimes very challenging for a lot of survivors. Uh, we were advocating at one time for safe homes in tribal communities to know that safe place to go. Again, very temporary safe emergency shelter. And there's um, a lot of programs back and forth. We have some tribes that are funding or helping to fund shelters in the cities. Uh, for, for their tribal members, for all tribal members actually, and also developing housing and apartments and transitional living opportunities. Again, tribes doing that to help their off-reservation relatives uh, have a place to live, have a place to get resources and support. And I think the other thing that's really important is when we look at the statistics and the data for violence against women, you know, we have the highest rates in the country. Well, that's because we don't have the resources to deal with that. And you know, it's, it, 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 go, it makes sense, it's perfectly logical that if we don't have the resources, the shelter, the services here in this community, then how, you know, that's, these numbers are gonna continue. You know, it's just, just right. the way it goes, it's really, um, we, we just wish we could get more shelters opened and um, you know, find place, safe places for people to go because it's really critical. Right, right, and um, you know, of course, funding. Funding, of course, is really, really critical. Um, can you guys talk a little bit more about the uh, National Work Group on Safe Housing uh, that started five years ago? What, what, um, what, what's going on right now, and what are you guys uh, working on? Going? Sure, so we, we started from that work group, and that was actually about three years ago, I think, that the work group came into being. We met in Phoenix, and uh, uh, as a result of that meeting, we came up with a number of recommendations. And of course, one of them was to create an indigenous safe housing center, which we have. And there were a number of other um, uh, things that came out of that, and I'll probably let Caroline talk about it. We continued to meet, and when we got funded as a center, we continued to hold those meetings twice a year to bring people from all across the country because, you know, as indigenous people, we're all different. We're not a monolithic nation, you know, everybody's different. So we have representatives from Alaska, from the Northwest, from Hawaii, from the East Coast, from Florida, you know, just all over the country, a good representation of people that can bring forth those housing concerns and issues in their communities. Now there are some tribal communities that are very well uh, resourced. They have plenty of housing and apartments and things like that. And they are still experiencing large homeless communities. 
And so we're also looking at those barriers that keep people out of housing. Mm. And as um, you may know, uh, in that whole housing industry, it's one strike, you're out. And oftentimes there's no second chance for people. You get an eviction on your record, you're gonna have a very difficult time getting a house or getting an apartment or a place to live. Right. So it's, it's, there's a whole lot of activity that's taken place during that time to try and get people into housing, like you know, quashing warrants or you know, expunging records. It's just so much work going on on so many levels to create, the, uh, to getting people into housing. Uh, people with mental health substance use issues, uh, people with a lot of children, uh, multi-generational families. We have one shelter in the Northwest that is um, addressing multi-generational families because when she doesn't have a place to go, her mom or her auntie or her grandma may not have a place to go. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought that was so cool that they, it's the only shelter I've seen that really does that, that bring in multi-generational families into the shelter. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of innovative work that's happening out there to, to kind of bridge that. And, uh, but we need more. <laughs> uh, Caroline? Yeah, I think what was really great about the work group and continues to be really great about the work group is that the housing space uh, and the domestic violence sexual assault field are both relatively siloed from one another. And so despite the fact that we often have this major crossover in our work, right, like DV and SA advocates are often trying to track down uh, safe housing and shelter uh, for the survivors that they're working with. And then you've got housing providers, right, who are very clearly, uh, if not most predominantly, working with survivors within their spaces, uh, but maybe aren't really thinking about it from that lens. Bringing those two groups together uh, has really resulted, I think, in a lot of fruitful conversations around what needs to shift in our two spaces. It's also given us this ability to think about the language that we use with each other. The housing space speaks a completely different language than the DVSA advocates speak. Um, and so I think that's been really helpful. The housing space is also very creative at layering funding, um, whereas we tend to, tend to stick to our typical grants. Um, and so I think that, that we're learning a lot from each other. I find that that's one of the really big things. It also allows us to be much more intersectional in our work. Um, we've got people who are in our work group who may have been formerly incarcerated or they work with incarcerated survivors, right? Sometimes we don't think about incarceration as housing, but it, it is a place where people live. We've got people who are focused on kids who are aging out of foster care. Um, same thing, those kids, right, they have unique needs around housing and shelter. So I think us bringing all of that together has really helped, uh, has helped our work be much more, I don't know, I guess deep is what I wanna say, um, especially from a prevention lens. And so yeah. I, yeah, I think the work group has been a really big blessing. One sort of funny aside is that our last work group meeting we had in Fort Lauderdale uh, during what was arguably a thousand or five thousand year flood uh, and so we had everybody fly in and there was like six feet of water on the ground oh, no. uh, but the Seminole tribe of Florida treated us really well so they, yeah yeah they took care of us but. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Gwen was mentioning um, you know it was really cool that they had this space that uh, was accommodating to multi-generational families um, are there any other uh, maybe success stories or um, uh, um, states tribes uh, communities that are doing a really good job that you guys maybe want to um, share as a model? Well, I think um, Mother Nation <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is really doing an outstanding job in the Seattle area. I mean, I, I just 
I really look to them for a lot of innovation that they've done in their street outreach, recognizing that there were so many Native people on the streets, and a good number of them, the percentage of, of a person who's experienced domestic violence on the streets pretty high. And so, but they have been able to, and I'm not gonna speak for Noreen because she has a beautiful story around all of this, but I think they're definitely one of those really promising practices and a program we always like to highlight in our, in our work. All right, let's go to Noreen then. Uh, Noreen Hill, founder and CEO of Mother Nation. Um, go ahead, tell that, tell that story. How did um, uh, Mother Nation get started? So we got started as a volunteer group. Um, we noticed that there was a high demand of, of services needed for our Native women that were outside, that were unsheltered. A lot of them came from treatment because they were escaping their abusers, so some of them went to treatment to get past their addictions. And then they'd get into, um, after they got out of treatment, they, they weren't ready to go home yet to their tribe. They needed more tools, support for them to just before they went back because there was a high stat of numbers of women who were um, leaving treatment and going right back into their relationships. So when we started off the work, we were working for a recovery house, a Spirit Journey Recovery House, and women would relapse, so we'd have to um, ex exit them from the program. So we followed them in the streets of Seattle and Marysville along the corridors of the tribes as well, the different local cities, and worked out of our cars and so supported them, helped them advocate for them, got them into tribal shelters. Back then, there was a lot of tribal shelters, and we, the tribal shelters would, would let us come in and co-advocate. We'd bring in our cultural wraparound healing services as well. So that's how we started off. And then we found out that Spirit Journey Village wasn't really owned by Mother Nation at the time. Um, so once they would leave, that, we were, that, that was it, they were done. So we created Mother Nation as, a, as that nonprofit, that survivor-led, survivor-driven to support them. And we've had so many success stories now with the work that we've done with the women who, who have been um, in, in the streets. Some of them work for us now. They're part of our mentorship program. And a lot of the challenges that we see is that there are shelters that are off-reserve, and um, I know that there's some that are out there, but they're not survivor-led, survivor-driven. They're going by contracts that they have to follow, and they're non-Indigenous. They're non so what we've been finding is that when our women are in the domestic violence situations, they, they, they end up enter into a grief and loss. They're really um, hurt as far as their trauma goes, so we bring in elders who offer those services for them. We do groups for them to understand you know, they lost their home, they lost their relationship, and since they lost their family. So they're suffering from grief and loss. So that cultural healing is so important to help them through that transition from a shelter back into housing again. So we make sure we do that cultural wraparound healing services. So we started off doing the advocacy work in the streets. I worked out of my car. That was my office for a while, mm -hmm. for three years. And then we moved on to um, getting a smaller space and we brought in homeless um, prevention programs. That was our wraparound. We always kept the sister in the middle. It was always about the survivor first and everything else that we got at Mother Nation and our services as cultural wraparound healing services as well as homeless prevention, homelessness emergency services. We also have a cultural response team too that will go to um, the sister's home or the brother's home you know, that we work with. Um, they get into a new home, we'll bless their home. We'll bring in um, somebody who will brush them off and we bring medicines in, the, in there for them and needle blankets so that, like Gwen was saying, they want to feel comfortable, they want to feel at home. So we do that kind of work with them. And sometimes we end up um, meeting them you know, in court as well, and supporting them in court. We bring in the essential oils. We've, we've gotten teachings on the essential oils that we were taught from um, some, some of our advocates and some of our women from the streets brought in essential oils to us and now they're our wellness advocates. And in court, you can't smudge, you can't 
do anything like that. So we'd have an oil PTSD oil kit, we called it, to help them calm them down and so they could function in, in the courtroom. Yeah. So yeah. there's different services like that we have that we offered, and it's all been based on what their need was first, and then we created the, they, they told us what their need was, and we made it happen for them. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Um, well, I, I want to go to a caller we have on the line right now. We have Chinupa in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Hey, Chinupa. Hey, thank you for having me. For the lady that just spoke of all these uh, traditional things that they do for a lot of the families and people that are transitioning from certain programs to help them, one of the things we women, you know, you women, and I say we women because I, I had to be a, a mother to my children, okay? <laughs> so I include myself, vice versa. But as, as women out there, we need to know that traditionally we never ever took things for granted. In modern perspective, it's difficult for us to live in these modes. Here on Pine Ridge is the commemoration of the Oglala shootout with Leonard Peltier. Leonard defended children. He also defended women and many other circumstances in that need. So here on Pine Ridge, I urge our women to constantly use the sources that are uh, beneficial to our needs because we just want a federal court case where they cannot remove kids or family members and place them outside reservation jurisdiction. That's what's happening. So if women can speak out loudly like that and get the men involved, we will protect you and men do everything that's needed from a matriarchal perspective. That's what I wanted to offer you guys from here on TV Radio. I'm sitting right in the hill here on, on Porcupine Butte next to the radio. It's the only place I get good reception. <laughs> and I thank all of you for having this topic and this conference on about protecting our women's rights and children. Thank you. Back to you. All right, thank, thank you, you so much, Chinupa, for chiming in there. Um, definitely, we're hearing it loud and proud here at the Women Are Sacred Conference here in Isleta. Um, I wanted to ask you, Noreen, about uh, maybe some of the, um, the other work you do over at Mother Nation, um, helping to facilitate housing for um, you know, folks who, who need it coming out of a, uh, an abusive situation. What we do is we offer move-in costs. So if someone's having to relocate, we provide them with that support. We provide them with hotel costs um, to temporarily get them into a space before they can get their, their home. We provide um, different types of resources and referrals for them to say if they're looking for employment. Uh, sometimes they have to change their employment because of where they're at. The biggest challenge we see is the legal support that's needed for them, you know, because they may have an eviction on their record, but it was due to a domestic violence case. So we find them an attorney to get them to get that eviction off their record so they can get back into housing again. That's one of our biggest challenges that we see is the legal support that's needed. And um, our team is going out getting more training on that. And we may be looking at a legal advocate to join our team as well because of that. And I think the, um, the housing part of it, you know, the, the cost that, the, the grants that we do have that come in, uh, we're really blessed to have grants that provide you know, statewide support for women who, regardless of where they are in Washington, they can come and get support. I think the challenge that we see again is the, um, I guess that 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 point of time before they're homeless to when they get into their housing. You know, there's that transition period that's really difficult for them, and the hotels are great, but they're alone and they're isolated in their trauma. We don't really like doing the hotels, but really, lately we haven't had a choice. 
Um, we're building a transitional program, Spirit Journey Village. We're going to be looking at um, four different housing units on an acre of land. So we're going to be building a sexual assault transitional house, um, a, a, a transitional house for um, people who are in adults, women who are in recovery, who are homeless, which are also DV, and also women with children. We're going to provide those three housing units, and we're going to have a common house where people can do visitations or cultural healing work with the elders coming in and having families getting brushed off. So we're looking at this project, and I think it's going to be a great support for them during that transition period. It's a two-year program, so it's not just three to six months. It's two years they can build their skills again, regain their cultural identity, get their voice again, and find out who they are. So they can be strong, you know, to have those voices, like Chinupa said, get up there and stand up and speak and, and have the men support us. So I think that's key to what we feel as Mother Nation is to survival is the healing work to help them get through that. Because sometimes we're dealing with um, third generation relocation natives. You know, Seattle was a relocation city. We're dealing with the third generation of those families now. Yeah. And other ones have died in the streets. And some of them feel like they don't deserve to be in housing. So the consistency of going out with our outreach team, we have a team called the Wa'antawan Outreach Team. And we have to go out consistently on the same day of the week. So that. They get trust. All right, that's uh, Noring Hill. We're going to go to this break, and uh, we'll be back. We're here uh, broadcasting live at the Women Are Sacred Conference. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to him that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Broadcasting live from the Women Are Sacred Conference, this is Native America Calling, and I'm Andy Murphy sitting in for Sean Spruce. There's still time to get in on our conversation today. We're talking about domestic violence shelters, transi transitional housing, and secure housing that all go into the network of services for Native survivors of domestic violence. We are at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to go back to our guest, uh, Noreen Hill. She is the founder and CEO of Mother Nation. She is Oneida. Uh, she's from the United Nation of the Thames. Uh, so, uh, Noreen, you were just talking about um, uh, creating a, a spirit journey village. Um, how, how has that been going? Um, has it been a, a smooth road? Have you had any resistance from, you know, the surrounding community of that of that village? We haven't. We've been really blessed to not have any mm. any resistance. Um, we the, the house has been there for 11 years, and we started working in that area over the past 10 years, and we've been really utilizing the allies and the support that they bring in from the community. Um, Catholic Community Services has been really pivotal in making sure that. We have a good place there with little, with little interference. And myself and the elders visited the local county sheriff to make sure they know that there's women here and they need to be safe. So they really have a good rapport with us. And the neighbors have been great. We have people of color in the neighborhood, so we just blend right in. <laughs> mm -hmm. The only time we, we see anything exciting is when we do our TP. Um, we have a TP um, um, recovery um, gathering with all of the former people who used to live there, the former sisters. and. We have teepees that we put up, and people are kind of slamming on the brakes, driving by, like, what's going on over there? 
But we've had a sweat lodge there as well. There's never been any issue from the fire department as well. So we've been really lucky to have the support that we do have. Okay. All right. And I want to ask the same question of uh, Caroline here. Has there been any kind of uh, resistance you've seen um, in, in maybe the other groups you've, you've worked with or? Yeah, I think in general, right, there's this, and we talk about this a lot within the work group and within our daily conversations about our work, there's actually sort of this, I don't know, pervasive view, right, that housing is a conditioned right, um, that it's not something that people should have access to just by virtue, right, of being people uh, or by virtue of being community members of ours. Uh, and so I think the key kind of resistance that we experience um, is that, is actually just addressing that mindset that, no, you know what, everybody needs a safe place to be. It doesn't matter uh, if they're um, misusing substances. It doesn't matter uh, if they have a conviction, right? It doesn't matter um, if they're non-binary or trans. It doesn't matter if they're part of um, any other sort of like disability community. You have got to stop. We, we really struggle with this idea of the ways in which sort of the Western world has creeped into what we do. Um, so I think that's, I think feel like to us, that's probably the most resistance or those conversations around, and it might not even be resistance, it might simply be a, well, how can we do that, right? Um, but I think, I think in terms of just that mindset, that, that seems to be our biggest problem, uh, is that people don't think people uh, should have access. They think they should, they should deserve it, uh, or that you should earn it. Um, and to me, that's a big problem. All right, when we have uh, uh, another person joining us right now, we have uh, Don Begay with the city of Albuquerque. Uh, Don, can you uh, just briefly introduce yourself and how you work with uh, uh, the community when it comes to finding housing for, for folks who need it? Hi, yes, thank you. My name is Don Begay. I am Deneth the Navajo Nation, and currently I oversee the city of Albuquerque's Office of Native American Affairs. Um, thank you guys for having me, and I'm glad to join this discussion. And so this really started, um, before I came to the city, I served as, um, I work with First Nations as a homeless outreach case manager, and I dealt um, with a lot of housing issues, trying to get people placed into housing. And one of the communities I really worked with were women experiencing some type of violence. Um, and I really saw that, one, there's a huge overrepresentation of Native Americans who are sleeping rough or unsheltered within Albuquerque. But there was um, even more socially vulnerable, socially targeted for our Native women, and especially like our trans women, right? And so as I transitioned to the city of Albuquerque, it was really like, okay, how can I take what I learned and what is the role of the city in addressing and responding to this need? And we really started looking at a lot of our data. This isn't looking at Native Americans wasn't something that, you know, the state or the city really looked at. And so we wanted to have a, a better idea of exactly what were the numbers. And this is still very difficult to look at, but we worked with a lot of our community partners to do the best we could. And what we've learned over the past um, six years is that there's a drastic increase um, among Native Americans experiencing homelessness. Um, we've increased 43% since 2015. And so part of that is to like how can we, what interventions can the city put in place so that we 
put an end to that spike and start to flatline and then to go ahead and start declining on those. Um, but we had to prioritize, right? Like who are the most vulnerable? When we looked at Native women, it was that they've experienced some type of sexual violence on the streets. 94%, and this is just like 94% of Native women on the streets will experience some type of sexual violence. And um, this is just for the data that we found. So, you know, all our numbers say like this is an underreport. So I'm pretty sure like pretty much all women on the street have experienced some type of violence. And this kind of really led us to look at, well, what can we do? Within the city of Albuquerque, um, it was to work with our community partners. Um, and to do participatory research and put in control, um, really understand from those who are most directly impacted and to say if the city were to do some type of sheltering service, what would it look like? And we've done a barrier analysis, which is on our website and I can share out to everybody. Um, and it really aligns with exactly what everyone is talking about here, is that we do have to uplift uh, culturally responsive and trauma-informed trauma care and really center it around, it has to be a place like home, it has to be a collaborative effort where there's multiple um, agencies involved in comprehensive care, uh, has to center safety, and then a reconnection back to community. It can't be like an isolation um, and, and to also have a space for spirituality and wellness. And so we're taking these concepts and adding it into our design, and then hopefully we can start shifting towards housing initiatives and housing projects that take these themes and values into account as the city examines what does, um, as a, we build housing and we build community, um, how do we integrate those values into our building system? Okay. And how is uh, the city of Albuquerque working with uh, surrounding tribes, Navajo Nation, Apache, and uh, uh, all the Pueblos? So that's a great question. Um, we have a couple of counts. One is we have our Commission on Native American Affairs, or our Commission on American Indian and Alaska Native Affairs. And in that, they have representation from all the neighboring tribes, as well as all Indian Public Council uh, governors, and one Navajo Nation chapter, which is the Tahajale chapter. And each of them get to appoint their own represent representative to speak on the commission and be an advisor to the mayor and to the administration. Um, another part is we work with um, the Southwest Indigenous Housing Justice Coalition, and it's a collective of all different organizations in the Southwest that want to prioritize housing justice. And we um, bring in recommendations that not will only go to tribal leadership, but also to incorporate and bring on the tribally designated housing entities in this area to share that we cannot work within our jurisdictions, that we have to do planning where people choose to live, and whether that be on the reservation or off the reservation. And um, we're looking at um, embedding cultural engagement in our different um, sheltering systems and housing systems so that there's a, a easy referral process that includes tribal housing as well as Albuquerque and county housing so that way people who want to be integrated back to tribal, they can, or if they choose to stay here, they should also have access to the tribal resources here in the city as well. So this is something that we've started and are gonna build on, and we still have a lot of work to do, and we still have a lot of like voices that we need to incorporate into this process, and so we highly encourage 
everyone to, you know, learn about our office, email us, <laughs> call us, and then, you know, basically, like, demand, you know, what needs to happen in the community and elicit a response from our not only city leaders, but tribal leaders to work together. Got it. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Don. Um, I want to go back over to uh, Caroline over here. Um, you're listening to Don talk about how there's representatives from tribes working with the uh, with the city on addressing um, this really really important issue. Um, do do you see that a lot, or um, would you want to encourage that more from uh, municipal uh, leaders, city leaders, state state leaders? Yeah, I think from a practical stance, right, you always want uh, local governments conferring with each other. Mm -hmm. um, it's ideal when they're working together. It's also ideal when they recognize the issues uh, that some of them have caused, right, via displacement of Native people. Um, I also think it's equally important to remember the relationship with the federal government. Um, you know, the feds have a legal uh, and fiduciary obligation to Native people. Indian tribes, uh, and that obligation includes resources, adequate resources for housing um, and safe shelter on tribal lands, on trust land. Um, you know, one of the things that we have been encouraging, at least in the last year, is that um, HUD, right, the um, the federal agency that deals with uh, housing funds, federal dollars, mm -hmm. is that they would start to partake uh, in this space that we work in. Um, so we've, you know, we've invited them to OVW's consultation in August. Uh, and really trying to get decision makers to the table where tribal leaders are um, engaging with federal government on a consultation on a nation-to-nation -nation basis. We think that's really important. Um, but one of the reasons we love having Dawn Piquet as a part of our work group, she brings in that element of the urban, you know, the urban planning and the urban um, collaboration, right, and the ways in which um, Native people who are working in within municipalities uh, are doing really great work for their communities too. Awesome. Um, and during COVID, we had a lot of uh, emergency funding coming down to help uh, out with housing. Did that trickle down to folks who are um, uh, in, in domestic violence situations as well? Yes and no. I think yes. that, you know, like ERAP, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, uh, and then obviously with CARES Act funding and then ARP dollars, there was this influx, right, of cash uh, into the space, and there were tribes that um, utilized that funding to provide housing uh, for the individuals in their communities. Um, but I think, as Noreen pointed out, there is also within the housing space, it's very legal, right? These are like a lot of times people are renting or otherwise they're like their contracts. Uh, people need the legal assistance piece of it, mm -hmm. and so with COVID, you know, with us being allegedly, and again, I use the word allegedly in this post-pandemic era. You know, where all of the assistance is starting to end, uh, we're expecting it to get much worse than it was during the pandemic. And I don't know if you know my other uh, panelists or the other guests can talk to that, but a lot of what we saw during the pandemic was, okay, we're going to put evictions on hold, right? Which really just meant that uh, you couldn't physically be removed from the place that you were in, but you were already evicted. Uh, and so once all this assistance ends, once the moratorium ends, uh, people are going to be on the street. They are going to be forcibly removed by the sheriffs in their counties uh, or in their communities. Um, and so I think that legal assistance piece that Noreen highlighted, which I'm really glad you're bringing in a legal advocate, by the way, that sounds awesome, is equally important for survivors. 
All right, and um, Gwen, do you want to talk about that, about um, uh, funding running out and how things might be worse, even though the pandemic was pretty awful for everybody? How, how, how does uh, you know, that funding um, drying out, how does that um, affect what's going on right now and um, how dire the situation can get in the future? Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're talking about the federal government, we're talking about local governments, but you know, really what's running the whole, driving the whole housing industry is private corporations. And so what we're seeing in so many cities, we're seeing more and more, it's not surprising that there's more and more homeless people because we have all these um, rental properties, uh, we've got people that were buying up these as investments during COVID, and then so what you once rented as a, you know, a $900 home, a $900 a month rent is now $1,800. You know, everybody, I think every city, every town, every place in this country uh, during COVID really experienced these huge spikes and changes mm -hmm. in the housing industry. And so we're hearing of people that are like, you know, nine people living in an efficiency. Uh, we hear p uh, stories of people living on, paying $600 a month of rent to live on someone's sofa and all they're allowed to have is a, you know, a little tub of their stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, these stories are very, very common all across the country. And uh, with, in terms of the, um, the moratorium when it ended, and, and there were evictions going on even during that moratorium is what we heard from a lot of people as well. And so um, when the moratorium ended, then that money was due. So if you didn't have 900 a month times 10 months, how are you going to pay that big bill at the end? You know, and again, one strike you're out in this system unless you have the legal advocacy and support that you need to, um, you know, to, to find a way out of that. Unless there's programs that are being offered for that, it's very, very difficult. The other thing I just wanted to mention too is that, you know, in terms of um, uh, families with children, um, Inadequate and unsafe housing is often the number one or two reason for child removal. And that's another big issue that we're always experiencing in Indian country. Um, and we'll continue to experience it despite the recent Supreme Court um, ruling because you know, we, we still have states that aren't uh, respecting that, that aren't acknowledging it, that aren't abiding by it. So we. I, uh, that's probably another whole show, but <laughs> right, I'm yeah, ramble about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely we can, um, you know, have a whole show about about that, and um, you know, it'll it'll be on our on our show sometime soon once um, you know we get it, we get a handle that oh, whew, the igwa is going to still be in place. <laughs> um, but that is unfortunately all the time we have for today, broadcasting live here at the Women Are Sacred conference. I'd like to say thank you to all of you. Uh, we had Caroline Report, uh, Laporte, Gwendolyn uh, Packard, Car um, uh, Noreen Hill, and then we just heard from Don Begay as well. I'm Andy Murphy. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you. Thank you. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
The Mariachi Spectacular Concert and Conference brings vibrant artistic, cultural, and ethnic mariachi maestros to teach and share the culture of the music and its history. Legends such as Stefan Carrillo, Mariachi Cobre, and Jose Hernandez of Sol de Mexico provide a truly unique and extraordinary music and educational experience July 12th through the 15th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.